having good mitochondrial function is important. And in preclinical studies, urolithin has been shown to improve mitochondrial function. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Research into medical interventions designed to delay or prevent diseases associated with neurodegeneration, like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, have been disappointing, to say the least. Some believe that in order to address this growing challenge, we need a new approach. One potential answer lies, oddly enough, in compounds found in pomegranates. And that is why I am pleased to be here live with Julie Anderson at the Buck Institute of Aging. Julie has a PhD in neurobiological chemistry from UCLA and then did her postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Neurology at Harvard University. And currently, she is a professor and researcher here at the Buck. The Anderson Lab identifies novel therapeutics to slow or prevent the age-related processes that drive neurodegenerative diseases. For example, she and other researchers at the Buck have been investigating compounds that clear out senescent cells which have been linked to age-related functional decline, as well as molecules that can ramp up autophagy, the natural mechanism through which cells effectively rejuvenate themselves by clearing out dysfunctional proteins and other components. Recently, she has received a grant from the NIH, the National Institute of Health, to examine the effects of urolithin A, a gut metabolite produced from dietary ellagic acid, on Alzheimer's pathology in a rodent model of neurodegeneration. Julie, how did you first become interested in aging? I have to admit, it was a bit of a fluke. My training really is in neuroscience, and I was always associated with like neurology departments. But when I was looking for faculty positions in the early 90s, one of the places I interviewed was the School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California. And ultimately, I ended up accepting an offer from them. And although I was recruited there because of my expertise in neuroscience, I ended up teaching an undergraduate course at USC on the biology of aging for non-science majors. So it was what they took as one of their GREs to graduate. And it was a lot of fun because it allowed me to expand my knowledge of aging beyond just the nervous system, but sort of the body as a whole. I got a lot more interested in aging and also being at that school I was interacting with different aging researchers that were working on different types of projects. And funnily, as an aside, my husband and I met each other at an aging meeting because we're science nerds. <laughs> when I think aging, I think romance. That's mm -hmm. what I <laughs> I always like to ask that question because it's often almost serendipitous interaction with aging, you first become aware of the idea and it captures the imagination. Yeah. Historically, scientists, we are tend to study the body in silos. Yeah. So it's like people studying the brain or the heart or whatever. So I think one of the really wonderful things about being here at the Buck Institute is it's all about aging and age-related disease and it's a cross-discipline. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes you think out of the box a little bit. And we've been here about 20 years and it's still so fun to be here. I can believe that being at an epicenter where the daily collisions of who you might run into at the cafeteria yeah, absolutely. stimulate yeah. new ideas. And, yeah. yeah <laughs> okay, so you're examining a metabolite known as urolithin A. Right. What is urolithin A and where does it come from and why are we interested in it? 
it turns out that your life then is a metabolite, so a breakdown product of elacic acid. Elacic acid is a polyphenol that's found in a lot of edible plants, and it's actually converted in by bacteria in the gut to urolithin A. And urolithin A has been shown to have a lot of protective effects in terms of different diseases, but it really does require breakdown of that natural food product by the gut microbiome. So we consume elagic acid and elagitannins, and then our gut microbiome will then metabolize those right. those plant compounds right. into. I was pronouncing it wrong. Oh, Ura- that's <laughs> urolithin. I've been calling them urolithins. You call it no. It's funny because part of being at the Bach, which is great, is there's a growing understanding of the relationship between the brain and the gut. What's called yeah. gut brain access, and in fact, that the composition of the bacteria in your gut can have effects in terms of brain function. So I've been learning, and it's the other thing I love about being a scientist is learning new things all the time, but I've been learning more about different kinds of gut bacteria, and many of those names are Latin and really hard to pronounce. So. Yes, there's a few I might stumble on uh, in a bit here. <laughs> Funny side story, but a lot of the work that I'd done previously was in narcolepsy, and uh-huh. the people that discovered the peptide hypocretin named it after the gut peptide secretin because they had similar chemical composition. That connection between the gut and the brain is is profound. Really interesting. So if we could get uh, elagic acids or elagic acids from our foods, what are the food types that have a higher concentration of it? You mentioned the one that seems to have the highest concentration, which is the pomegranate, but it's also pretty high in walnuts, different types of nuts, but particularly walnuts and different types of berries, including strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, different types of tropical fruits. And I'm sure many people would be glad to hear that it's also high in oak-aged red wine. (laughs) I did notice that. I did notice that. (laughs) So then do people vary to the extent which they convert the LH acid into the urolfins? And if so, what is that based on? Absolutely. So it really is based on, so everybody has a different composition of bacteria within their gut. And there are people who have more or less of the bacterial species that are known to convert lactic acid or EA to UA, this easier way of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of saying this. So they're sort of known as low producers and high producers, depending on the composition of their gut. Right. And are there, it looks like Metaba type zero, there's non-producers too. Right. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. Some phenotypic work that was done showed that people that were producing either a low amount or some amount, if they were given pomegranate, they would produce more. And right. That's, that's exciting. But right. some people didn't, yeah. even if you gave them more pomegranate and more precursors, they still didn't make it. It speaks to, there's a lot of interest in prebiotics and probiotics and beets, speaks to the utility of that, that that's something that's malleable. You can alter the composition of your gut, both depending on what foods you're eating, but also just taking pre and probiotics, right? The first question of when I stumbled upon that is, is there a way to know my yeah. own phenotype? Is there a test that I could take? Yeah, there are actually tests for figuring out what the composition of your gut microbiome. Funnily, in some of the preclinical studies that we're doing, we're actually doing that with the mice that we're treating with Muralithin A. So we're collecting feces <laughs> and we're sending them off to a company who's then analyzing the microbiome composition. Mm. And we're 
beyond Eurolife and A, we're interested in other types of natural products like vitamin D. Vitamin D has been shown to increase lifespan in some preclinical studies. There are some epidemiological studies that suggest that it helps stave off Alzheimer's disease. And really through our interest in neurolithin and thinking more about how these different compounds get metabolized by the gut, we've become interested in looking at what happens with vitamin D in Mm -hmm. the gut and how that might alter the gut microbiome. So at the moment, there are research ways to assess urolithin A production, but there's not a consumer test that we Right, yeah, so Mm -hmm. you can't just go out and to the drugstore and pick up a kit where you're sending off samples. Yeah. Too bad. Yeah, it is too bad. I mean, the technology's there and it's pretty straightforward to do. Okay, innovators, if you're listening, (laughs) what is a good idea for you? Yeah. If you are a producer of your Olifanag, does that change across the lifespan? It's not completely clear based on the human studies that have been done exactly what all the bacteria are that could be playing a role in conversion. So people are high and low producers, but we do have alterations in our gut microbiome with age. And it seems in general that there's a decrease in bacteria that allow conversion of EA to UA. And so you think with an older individual drinking pomegranate juice, that may not be as effective as it would have been when they were younger. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have different metabotypes or different producers of urolithin A. And that seems to be dependent on the presence of certain gut microbes. I mean, if you are a producer of urolithin A, the composition can still change. So what do we know about the types of gut microbes that are important in the conversion of ellagic acid to urolithin? This is one of these that I won't be able to pronounce, (laughs) but actually it's interesting because recently, and I wrote it down for myself, recently there are was suggesting that they had discovered a bacterial type that they weren't really aware of before called Egerthylacase. I'm probably slaughtering that, but people are interested in that particular bacteria type because it seems to be important in terms of the conversion. And you could imagine that rather than most pre and probiotics, where you're in essence taking something that's introducing new bacteria into your gut, it's a mix of different bacteria and it's often like lactobacillus and things like that. You could imagine that if we really pinpoint this particular microbiome as being involved in the conversion, you could take that in pill form just like you do for a mixed pre or probiotic to help in the conversion. So you're drinking your pomegranate juice and you're taking this particular bacteria in the form of a pill. If we were to arrive there, that seems incredibly easy to take action on. Yeah, you wouldn't have to necessarily get a prescription, right, from a doctor to do that. I'm going to just have a little fun with this because I'm going to try to pronounce two of the bacteria types that seem to play okay. a role. <laughs> the Gordonobacter urolithin faciens was one. Yeah. And the other one was Gordonobacter pomelae. <laughs> yeah, which clearly <laughs> yeah. was named exactly. after pomegranate. There are different studies which have pointed different bacteria as being involved. And that's part of our interest is trying to suss that out more particularly in terms of in these preclinical Alzheimer's and Parkinson's models. The one strategy that is 
look at the future a bit. There'd be a test to know what type of metabotype you are and if you're a producer of your A. And if not, maybe there would be the ingestion of a pre and probiotic that yeah. could make you one. And maybe you'd want to do that anyway over the lifespan just to keep levels of this metabolite high. high. Right. The other idea is to synthesize urolithin A directly. And I know that that's occurring now. Yeah, they're actually, and I'm sh- I'm sure you noted this there, the first clinical trial with urolithin A was published this year. It was in 60 healthy older mm-hmm. individuals and they were given urolithin A orally. It was for two weeks or yeah. something. And what the researchers looked at in particular was muscle mm-hmm. function. Cells, just like our body, have organs that we call organelles. So the nucleus is the brain of the cell. There's something called mitochondria that are really the power plants of the cell. And if you think about tissues or cells that require a lot of energy, of course, our muscles are using a lot of energy. Having good mitochondrial function is important. And in preclinical studies, urolithin has been shown to improve mitochondrial function. So they looked particularly in these individuals at what kinds of genes were getting turned on by ingesting urolithin, particularly genes that were improving mitochondrial function, and they found that they were upregulated. So it's cool that it was in such a short period of time they were able to see that benefit, and it doesn't seem to have side effects. We were really happy to see that study. I've been following that work from the company. It's a Swiss company, Amacentis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they did a variety of preclinical work in first in nematodes and then in mice. And they showed that the nematodes lived almost 50% longer. Right. And yeah. then the mice had greater times to exhaustion, so they were more fit. Yeah. And so their muscle function speaks, was yeah, better. Yeah. yeah. And it looks like Amazentis is specifically going after age-related decline in muscle functions with sarcopenia, which I was alarmed by some of the statistics about 30% of people that are 60 have some form of sarcopenia and 50% over 75. Right. And yeah. Of course, you can see how that leads to frailty and... Uh, yeah, and falls. Because here at the Buck, we are involved in studies that are very much like what Amantis did, that we're starting with invertebrate models like C. elegans, people for the layperson that seems nutty that yeah. you're looking at this little worm. But it turns out that a lot of genes that are involved in aging or longevity are evolutionary preserved from worms all the way up to human beings. And there's certain conserved pathways that seem to be involved. And it seems like urolithin is impacting on some of those pathways. It's also very cool in the sense that because it's impacting on some of these basic pathways, UA is a compound that may be good for not only improving muscle strength, but brain functions, these basic aging mechanistic pathways that could have global effects in terms of many different age-related diseases. Out of the nine hallmarks of aging, no one of those hallmarks that diminished mitochondrial function does not influence. Right. We think of them as the powerhouse of the cells. They're doing a lot more than that but maintaining adequacy of energy for all the functions necessary to life is critical. Let's talk about mitochondrial dynamics. Is there only one mitochondria in a cell? There's like hundreds. And it's funny, they're always represented as this jelly bean shaped, but they're really all interconnected and communicating with each other. And there's hundreds Mm -hmm. in a cell. 
So not only the efficiency of the mitochondria, but the number of mitochondria in the cell, all of those things are important. The pathway by which we got to your life and really started with our laboratory's interest in Parkinson's disease. And it mm-hmm. turns out with Parkinson's disease, one of the age-related functions that impact on PD is mitochondrial function. And so we have a long-term interest in how to keep mitochondria healthy in patients with Parkinson's disease. And we were actually then screening from a natural compound library and looking at natural compounds that were enhancing mitochondrial function in the context of preclinical models of Parkinson's disease. One of the compounds that we looked at was rapamycin, which is the first compound that in a mouse, in terms of aging in mice, demonstrated an increase in lifespan. One of the properties of rapamycin is to improve mitochondrial function by getting rid of defective mitochondria based on some studies that we published in preclinical Parkinson's mouse models with rapamycin and trying to understand the mechanisms that were involved, then screening for drugs that were impacting on the mechanism. That's how urolithin came into the picture for us. So as I understand it, these networks of mitochondria, they live a very active social life. They are, yeah. <laughs> they are fusing together. Yep. They are then separating in a process of fission. And as we get older, due to unknown reasons, the ability for the normal quality control mechanisms of mitochondria get impaired. And so these mitochondria get larger and then can evade the normal mitophagy or breakdown processes. Yeah. So this is this idea that the cells have come up with a means of both making mitochondria and once they get older and decrepit, breaking them down again. And that continuous process and that when you break down decrepit mitochondria, the components of the mitochondria can be used to make new mitochondria. So it's both what we call biogenesis and mitophagy, which is this breakdown of mitochondria. And one of the important proteins that's involved in that is there's a master regulator protein called transcription factor EB, which basically when it's upregulated, it turns on expression of a lot of mitochondrial genes that are important actually for both biogenesis and mitophagy. That's really the protein that we screened on. We were looking for things that were affecting TFEB activity, okay. and we were doing it in this natural compound library, and urolithin was one of the things. Mm-hmm. And it had already been known from the preclinical studies that you alluded to that it seemed to be aiding in mitophagy mm-hmm. and those coelogans and mouse studies that had been published. So, so exciting. Mitochondria are energy sources that are absolutely fundamental to life and preservation of youthful function as we age. And as they degrade the ability to execute quality control, which includes both biogenesis or new mitochondria formation, autophagy, clearing out the old ones, is impacted. That leads to reduced function. It really could be affecting every part of the body. Yeah, because it's in every cell. Yeah. How does the gut microbiome influence the nervous system and potentially neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's? Those of us in the neuroscience field studying diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, historically, we were very fixated on what was going on in the brain and how loss of different types of neurons within the brain could drive disease. 
So in Parkinson's disease, you have these dopamine-containing neurons in the midbrain in this area of the brain called the substantia nigra that are lost with age, and they're part of a circuitry of neurons that are involved in voluntary motor movements. So when people lose those neurons at a higher rate than everybody else does as a consequence of normal aging, they start freezing. And with Alzheimer's, it's hippocampal and cortical neurons within the cortex and the hippocampus that are involved in memory and learning. Mm -hmm. And even at that level, we still don't completely understand why do certain individuals are more at risk for Parkinson's, more at risk for Alzheimer's. Besides rare genetic defects, which don't account for most of the cases of PDNAD, we used to completely concentrate on the brain. With Parkinson's disease, though, people started to realize that there were certain functions that went awry outside of the brain that occurred 10, 20 years before someone developed PD. They would develop IBD or gastrointestinal mm -hmm. problem. There would be loss of smell, reductions in REM sleep, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, there's a push to look at those changes as biomarkers for potentially developing Parkinson's disease. We started to realize, well, maybe this isn't just those neurons in the brain. There are things that are going on below the neck that could be driving the disease. And there's been a growing interest in the gut microbiome. Studies have been done where it's been shown that Patients with PD do have an altered microbiome compared to age-matched older individuals and realization that certain bacteria that may be producing toxins that are released into the blood that can cause neuroinflammation in the brain. And conversely, there are things like urolithin that may be protective, so they're produced in the gut and released into circulation and cross the blood-brain barrier and increase metophagy within neurons and increase function of mitochondria. It's becoming a burgeoning field now, and I really love it because it is a raison d'etre at the back. We're looking across the whole body, so looking past whatever the primary organ is of whatever disease you're looking at, people are starting to realize how important that is. It's all connected. Okay, so let's talk about how autophagy then might be affecting this process of neurodegeneration. Are those two related? Yeah. Also with age, again, in almost every cell in the body, you have this loss in autophagy. So continuing with this analogy about the neuron being the brain and the mitochondria being the powerhouse, we have another organelle called the lysosome, which is really kind of the recycling center of the cell. So both damaged mitochondria, different damaged organelles, and also damaged proteins get recognized by the cell and tagged, and they get directed to the lysosome. And the lysosome is really a sack of enzymes. Mm -hmm. So the protein and mitochondria get taken up within the lysosome, and they get broken down into their components for reuse. And unfortunately, with age, the function of the lysosome, like mitochondrial function, also diminishes. When that occurs within neurons, you end up with defective proteins. You can end up with proteins that are more prone to aggregation. So Alzheimer's disease, you have these plaques and tangles, which are really protein aggregates that have built up over time. In Parkinson's, you have what are called Lewy bodies, which are made up of aggregated alpha-synuclein protein. 
So that process, if autophagy is working properly, you're making sure that you have functional proteins and organelles. I used this visual motif years ago to help myself understand that process of autophagy better. I imagined autophagy being this process of a vacuum cleaning up broken products and then brings it to the incinerator, which yeah, is the nice Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy too. <laughs> Sometimes those are helpful. <laughs> is there any work then looking at this directly, pomegranate and Alzheimer's disease? For the last decade or two, there have been studies where people have looked at giving pomegranate juice, not only just to mice that have been engineered to have Alzheimer's disease, but to patients. And the report suggests that the pomegranate juice does seem to help. The thing about giving something like pomegranate juice, there's so many components. We as scientists were trying to figure out what is in the pomegranate that's actually eliciting this effect. I had a really wonderful conversation with senior scientist Pamela Maher from the Salk Institute. A lot of her early work was looking at nootrophic factors, trying to create drugs that would act propitiously, and that they all failed. But when she started to move to nature's original pharmacy, plant compounds, she had a lot more success. And one of the main reasons why is it filled a really important criteria of being able to get into the brain. Right. Yes. Thank you. Because I think it's something people don't think about a lot. The brain has what's called immune privilege. You don't want any random toxin getting into the brain. So there is this blood-brain barrier things within the circulation aren't allowed to just drift into the brain. They have to be taken up. So there is this blood-brain barrier, which is great for us as human beings. But in terms of developing drugs, it's another hurdle that you have to overcome. Is it going to be capable of entering the brain? Fortunately, urolithin A is something that crosses the blood-brain barrier. So it can get into the brain and induce autophagy, which then will help to break down these aggregates that are toxic if they accumulate. They can. Originally, when people were looking at postmortem tissue from Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, you saw these protein aggregates. Well, this must be the cause of the neurodegeneration. But as we've started to study them more, we realize Maybe they're not. Maybe the aggregates form to prevent the buildup of soluble toxic forms Mm. of those proteins, which initially may be good, but eventually if you have too much of a buildup, it's not a good thing. Initially, it's a protective response that then ultimately leads to more problems. Right, exactly. The consensus is both in terms of alpha-synuclein with Parkinson's or A-beta or tau are the components that make up the plaques and tangles in Alzheimer's, that it may very well be those, those soluble toxic forms that are bad and right. causing the problems. I understand that some drugs that were targeted at trying to prevent the aggregation actually led to worse clinical outcomes. Yeah, it is true that there's been a lot of immunotherapy that's been targeted at getting rid of A-beta or tau, and those have not been clinically successful. We think it may be that this process that you alluded to, cellular senescence, we think that it may be that A-beta can elicit this cellular senescence within neurons Cellular senescence is another one of these pathways of aging, which involves cells in response to stress. They stop dividing, so it prevents them from becoming cancer cells. 
but they also unfortunately secrete inflammatory factors that can affect neighboring tissues. We are testing our hypothesis, but testing whether A-beta elicits cellular senescence within neurons or other cells, but then the spread is independent of mm -hmm. the presence of A-beta. And therefore, even if you get rid of A-beta, that's not going to stop progression of the disease. The laboratory really works on those two basic aging mechanisms, autophagy and cellular senescence as they relate to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So hearkening back to the comment a moment ago of my conversation with Pamela Maher, we were speaking specifically about some flavonoids, one facetin, which yeah. we, we know is a senolytic in the yeah, dose, yeah, yeah. which if you're not familiar with that term, the audience, this, it helps to break down senescent cells after the senescence has occurred. And that seems to be a favorable thing to eliminate some age-associated decline. Yeah. In fact, we have some data in cultured cells that some of these senolytics, which are getting rid of senescent cells, may be having their impact through affecting levels of autophagy. So as you were saying, most of these pillars of aging, they're not necessarily separate, standalone. They do interact. That leads good to my next question. So urolithin A is an antagonist of the Farnesoid X receptor, which elevates expression of the TFEB, which we mentioned previously and in turn enhances autophagy. Does antagonism of Farnesoid X receptor appear to have other effects on cholesterol homeostasis? Right. Therein lies an issue because <laughs> FXR, well, so I will say most of the studies in terms of FXR studies within the gut because it's known to, to play a role in cholesterol mm -hmm. synthesis and so forth. And through our studies, we realized, and there are a couple of publications, a smaller publications in this as well, that FXR receptors also reside in neurons in the brain. Unfortunately, increase in FXR is a good thing in terms of gut function, but it could be a bad thing in terms of brain function. So to some degree, this is in a broader sense when you talk about drug side effects. These are the things that we need to be aware of, and it's probably why it's also important for scientists that are working in different disciplines to be talking to each other because we sometimes tend to work in yeah. a silo or in isolation and not thinking about the impacts of drugs on the rest of the body. In 2004, I went to a workshop on obesity at the Society of Neuroscience, and Hans-Rudi Berthoud made a comment that stuck with me. The systems involved in energy regulation, they are complex, distributed, and redundant. You have one molecule that we know has certain effects, but it is doing something completely different in a different system. Yeah, I know historically, too, there is sort of this emphasis on drugs that people think are only affecting a single system, but I'm not sure it exists, really. There is now an interest in dirty drugs that have multiple positive effects, like metformin is in clinical trials as an anti-aging agent. Metformin does a lot of different things. It doesn't really impact on just one pathway. Also derived from a plant as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rapamycin yes. from a fungus. Well, going back to the work of your grant, you'll be studying a rodent model of neurodegeneration. So what makes mice a suitable representation for Alzheimer's pathology? And what outcomes will you be tracking in these experiments? Yeah. 
mice aren't humans. <laughs> There's not a perfect mouse model of any disease, I would venture to say, but you can genetically engineer mice you can put human genes that drive familial forms of Alzheimer's disease, and those mice then take on characteristics that you have in Alzheimer's patients. So that's both the neuropathology, A-beta plaques, tau, neurofibrillary tangles. You have neuroinflammation, which is basically turning on of immune cells in the brain that are giving off pro-inflammatory factors that can be detrimental to neurons. You can also run, which is cool, cognitive tests on mice on learning and memory. Mm. So you can run tests to see how having this neuropathology tracks with their cognition. Those are the kind of things in these studies we want to look at the impact of urolithin and other compounds that upregulate autophagy, how they impact on mitochondrial function within the neurons and how this then coincides with, we hope, improved or slowing of neuropathology and how that in turn impacts on cognition, learning, and memory mm. in those mice. Well, Julie, we all await eagerly to hear the results of this exciting line of work that you and your team are conducting. We're hopeful that your AllFNA will ultimately prove to be a very powerful therapeutic at ameliorating several age-related conditions. So thank you very much for taking the time to discuss this with me today on Humanoist Radio. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.